This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. This episode is made possible by one of my favorite family-owned companies. Blue Sky Furled Leaders are designed for anglers who want a long-lasting leader, Blue Sky leaders are measured by the season, while the life of conventional mono leaders can often be measured in days or even minutes. Each of Blue Sky's furled tapered leaders are handwoven in the USA from over 90 feet of premium nylon material. From here, they are individually inspected and tested before packaging to ensure the highest quality standards. Check them out at www.blueskyfly.com. Ted Niemeyer was one of the most skilled fly tires the fly fishing world had ever seen. A pioneer of realistic fly patterns, Ted was gentle to the core, so when he kindly welcomed me into his Washington home to share an afternoon of discussion, I was delighted. I am sad to say that we lost Ted last year, and with his passing, we've said goodbye to one of the last true gentlemen we had in this sport. I was born in Kenmore, Washington, which is right next to Bothell and Lake Forest Park on either the east and west, and I lived all of my young years until I graduated from high school. The day I graduated from high school, I moved to a city, Lake City, uh, where I lived until I was 18. At 18, I was going to college at the University of Washington. What were you taking, Ted? Uh, Architecture. Okay. And I did not like the university and the teaching I was getting there, so I opted to leave and go to California. 
Well, in going to California at age 18, there was a lapse of one semester in between because of my transfer. Unfortunately, the Korean War was on, mm. and I was drafted. They caught me in between. So I decided, okay, if you're going to draft me, I'm going to have my fling before I go, because I know what it might be. Mm-hmm. So I flew to Hawaii, sold my car, moved out of the fraternity house. I rented an apartment in Hawaii, and it wasn't one month later when they drafted me no. and called me in. So I went through Army basic training in Hawaii at Schofield Barracks, and this was at age 18. I went through the basic training there and graduated, and on the day I graduated, my commanding officer in our battalion called me in, and he said, Ted, he said, get your finest duds on and get up to the general's office. He wants to interview you. And I thought, my goodness, what have I done? I'm in big trouble with the big man in charge. And I was scared to death. I I didn't know what I'd done. I didn't think I'd done anything. So I dressed up, got all spiffed up and shoes shined and everything. And I walked into the office and was stiff as a board and saluted him and so forth. And he said, Mr. Niemeyer, relax. Yes, sir. Or he said, private. Private Niemeyer, relax. So I did, I relaxed a little bit, and he looked me in the eye and he said, Mr. Niemeyer, you're going to officer school. I said, what? I didn't know anything about it. What does that mean? Well, he wanted me to be an officer in the military. Uh, He read my resume and so forth. He said, you're a good candidate. Uh, where Where do I go, sir? He said, Fort Belvoir, Virginia. Here I was in Hawaii. So they put me on a ship and then a plane, and I went back to Fort Belvoir, Virginia, where I went into the fifth class of candidates for officer school and the Korean War. The previous units were all graduated and sent to Europe and to Korea. Uh, mine was the fifth class. There were 30-some-odd men chosen to go to that school. And I went to that school, and believe it or not, I graduated. Mm -hmm. All of the men in there had been college, college graduate engineers. I was not an engineer. I was just an architect. But I did graduate. And of the 30-some-odd I think only 16 graduated of the 30-some-odd to the status of second lieutenant. And in that group, they picked out the top men that graduated, and I was number six of 16. Wow. So I was right up near the top, the only one that hadn't been to engineer school. And I was kind of scared a little bit, (laughs) Not, not knowing what I was getting into. Well, anyway, it was a mix-match attendance in the military. I have to tell you, I was chosen to go to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri to train a unit uh, to eventually go to Europe and build the hangars, runways, airfield, 
facilities and so forth. So I, uh, I did that, and then they transferred for the final few weeks to Mineral Wells, Texas, where we went. And the general of the base there, which was Air Force, we were working for Air Force then, called me in one day, and he said, uh, Lieutenant Neymar, you don't have enough time to go overseas. You miss it by a few days. You're going to be my base athletic director. He said, go out and build a swimming pool, build a auditorium for basketball, build a football field, and a baseball field. Well, what did I know about any of these things? Nothing. So I went out, and with the help of many, many people, I built everything but the football field. That was just too big. Uh, didn't get it done. Anyway, I got out of the service at that time. At that time, I realized what I had been through in fishing. So I looked back on it, and in the early years, very early, and I mean toddler almost, there was a creek in Lake Forest Park that went into Lake Washington. And in the year that I studied that creek, all of the spawners would come up, all of the salmon, all the trout were in there and so mm -hmm. forth. And I used to fish in that little creek, which wasn't 10 yards across, but a nice flow of clear water. And I'd go down there with an old metal rod, tubular, that would be brought down and put together so that I could carry it on my bicycle. And I'd go down there on my bike and I'd fish for trout and salmon in that little creek. That's where I started out. And as I grew up fishing that stream, I would get on my bike and bicycle to other streams in the vicinity and fish. And me and one of my real close friends in school, grade school, during the summer used to get on our bikes and we'd go up to the mountains and we'd camp out and we'd stay up there and fish and fish and fish. We'd always check in with the ranger station so we knew where we were, and we would eat anything we could find. All right. We had some money, but not much. What year was this? Oh, what was my graduation? I'm trying to think. How old are you now? I'm 86. 86. Remember, he is not quite right. That's okay. So in the 40s, do you think? Yeah. Or the 50s? Oh, yeah, it was during the war. So you were and fishing? And Korean came right after the the end of 46. And you would have been, yeah, so you would have been fishing in the 30s. Oh, yes. And you have to remember that also during this time, when I got a little older, my grandparents, who lived in Kenmore, and he was with the big timber company, and he worked down on the lake, where they would bring logs down on trains and dump them in the water, mm. and he'd tie them all together, and they towed them down Lake Washington to the lumber mills. He bought a place at Point No Point. I don't know if you know where it is. It's over on the peninsula near Port Angeles. And we had he had that place. It was only a second home built there. And during the summer, and even into the spring or the fall, depending upon the weather, he and Grandma, when he got off work on Friday, they would pick me up in Lake Forest Park, and they would take me over to Point No Point for the weekend. 
because he had to be back Monday morning to work. So I'd go over there and I fished every day and walked the beaches at Point No Point. And I do that every, every weekend. So my fishing was incredible. And I fished with my granddaddy. I learned how to fish. Uh, the only times I did freshwater fish is when I came back and because of the weather, my grandparents would not be going over. So I'd go find a stream and go fishing in the rain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I had a good time. And that's the way I kind of grew up and into this whole thing. Now, as far as fly tying, it became an, a major, major hobby in my life. And I got into it because in all of these treks and so forth, I would find feathers, owl, all kinds of birds. And I would save those. And I realized later on, there was a young man that came up fishing one day up on the Skagit River. I was fishing for trout. He came walking up the beach and he had three nice big trout. And I said, how'd you catch those? Because I was fishing with eggs. I wasn't a fly fisherman then. And he said, I use flies. I said, oh. And he said, yeah. And he opened a box out of his pocket. And it was his fly wallet. And it was filled with beautiful colored flies. All, all imagination was in there. And I saw that and I had to learn. I had to learn what to do. Do you remember who that was? Yes, he was, his name was, I think, Pratt. Alan Pratt. He was a, an artist in Seattle for the Seattle Times. Uh, he was a young man then. He wasn't maybe in his 20s. He did cartoon-type drawings in the paper. He drew flies. Anyway, it was up on East Lake, and I remember the, the first time I went uh, was 25 cents on the bus from Lake Forest Park, and I went up on East Lake, and it was a house on the avenue, and he went through the front gate and in, and his living room was turned into a fly shop oh, where excellent. he sold feathers. That's where I got my first good quantity of feathers to tie flies, and I went home with a real cheap vice that I bought and feathers and I started to learn to tie flies. And I realized that at one point it was going to have to be a hobby because we I came from a very poor, broken home. I had no father in the house. My mother worked as a nurse's aide and she was gone from 4 in the morning on the bus to work and didn't get home till 7 p.m. at night. So I was all alone. In the, in the house that we rented in Lake Forest Park. So I didn't see my mother except on the weekends, or yeah, I was with my grandparents on the weekends, so my mother could have a day off. So that, that's the way I grew up until I was 18. And I realized that I, I had to tie flies and not take any money from household work. Uh, and I did that until I was 18 and I sold a few flies mostly just things that would catch fish I didn't worry about what they looked like <laughs> I just caught fish and then I left left home and uh, you know the rest with the military and so forth okay so when you get out of the military what do you go and do for work <laughs> that was funny prior to my being drafted 
I went to Honolulu. I sold my car and had cash in my pocket. I rented an apartment when I got there on the beach. I soon ran out of money. Mm. Okay. Where was I going to make some money? I went to the airport and Pan American and United were interviewing for ramp service men. Men that handled food on the plane, put baggage in the baggage holes, so forth and so on. And I interviewed at Pan Am and, and United. Before I got home, United was on the phone and said, we hired you. Wow. You come tomorrow morning. So I went the next morning, and I worked for two months before the military got a hold of me and pulled me in. So I worked two months with United Airlines. I didn't realize that once you work for United, if you go into service, your time over a span accumulates and you get that seniority. So when I got out of the service, I was already a three-year service with United. Hmm. And that stood me in good stead to start out up the ladder with United a little bit, rather than just a baggage handler or something. Right. So I was put on the ticket counter as one of those agents. Oh, I see. And okay. they trained me and so forth. And I became a, an employee of United for 34 years. Oh, wow. that's amazing. Yeah. When did you start getting involved again with the, the guys in Washington and the Washington fly fishers? It was kind of funny. I had tied flies on and off after I got out of the service. And when I got out of the service, I was stationed by United in San Francisco. I worked in San Francisco, and then I was going to try to get back in school, so I transferred to Oakland. But then a big job came up in Chicago at Midway Airport. So I said, the dangling carrot is out there. Are you going to take it? Much more money. So I did. So I went to Chicago and I worked there for quite a while. And in a couple, a year, year and a half, they said, New York needs a new, two new managers at the airport. And I got one of them. So I transferred to New York. And in New York, there came the the information and so forth about the Catskills mm -hmm. and the history and so forth of fishing on the East Coast, right. which I had never seen, never heard of. And so when I got there, I started uh, reading about and trying to learn a little bit about the education of fly fishing in the East. I did that and I tied flies and I got married and I lived downtown Manhattan, right next to to uh, Abercrombie and Fitch and all of those. Okay. So we were in a very enclosed apartment, small, and there was a little closet, only about that wide, and about 30, 36 inches, with the door on it. And I had to put my total fly tying equipment and materials and everything in that little closet, which was meant for coats, that's all. So I started tying flies there in earnest to make some extra money 
because being married and living in Manhattan, so forth, and I tied flies, and I took some of my flies to a shop on 2nd Avenue in New York. <clears throat> it was called the Angler's Cove, I believe. And uh, she put them in the case under glass, and they became a sensation with the guys that came in. They didn't know who in the world tied these. These were incredible, different flies. What kind of flies? Natural. I imitated the natural fly. The true naturals. So a natural is a fly that is an exact replica of the real thing. Very close to. And um, what is the advantage to tying? Uh, I mean, I hear some people say that it's just for show because sometimes they're so they look so much there like the real thing. There are different types of, of tying. Okay. Okay. This is a natural. If you stop and think, what do the fish eat? You want to tie something the fish eat. Mm-hmm. The fanciful flies that they're tying here in the salmon guild and so forth are beautiful, but they know they're not for fish to eat. They're for beauty, uh, uh, workmanship, and so forth, and I have some that are incredible here. And that's the, the division we have. We have fly tying for edible food for fish. And we have fly tying for the show to fishermen and those who want to get into the art. So that's where we were with that. And because the fly was so unusual, they sent over a man from Bob Boyle was the name. He was a writer for Sports Illustrated. He came over and did a one-page article on me with photographs. And that started me in the delving into the tying methods and so forth and so on, really geared up to doing well beyond what I had imagined. And I got into it and I kept doing that. And then I started going up into the Catskills to learn all about the men who have come and gone. Did you get to meet Lee Wolf? Oh, yes. Fish with him. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Joan Wolf and Lee Wolf. I'll tell you about that. That one with Eric Leiser, and we did that on the Madison River in Montana together. And that was quite an episode. I'll tell you about that one later. <laughs> anyway, um, I learned to fish up in the Catskills and learned their methods and so forth with the Deddies, the Darbies, Paul Jorgensen, all of the other good tires and so forth. I was not available to make plans to fish with any of them. Because of my time constraints, I'd work some days, five days a week, and then seven. So I only went to the Catskills when I had time. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't, I couldn't meet up with the Catskill tires to fish. But I had a good friend whose name was uh, Norm Thompson. He was a vice pres president of uh, Shell Chemical Corporation. He was stationed in Manhattan. So he and I would get in his Mercedes and we'd go fishing together. So he was a companion for a number of years while I lived in Manhattan. And I fished the Catskills and the surrounding areas. And I went down to Pennsylvania and so forth. But I didn't get to meet any of the people until the shows started to show up. And out here in Seattle, they wanted me to come out because I was on vacation and and perform fly tying for 
one of the fly shops, and uh, I started making some money to pay for my hobby, and that's where I went. So you're a pretty well-known natural fly tire at this yes, point. Yes, yes. People know me because of the flies that I tied, basically on the East Coast. I tied many of them for out here, because I worked as a kid in Alaska in a fish cannery, and I took trips to Alaska to fish. I ventured up through Canada, lower Canada, and I fished all over the state of Washington, Montana, Idaho, uh, Colorado. But then I had the children, so I moved out of New York and I moved up to Connecticut, where I spent the next 17 years. Oh, wow. That concluded my work with United. Okay. I would commute every day into Manhattan. That was a tough job because of the commute, but <clears throat> I wanted my children educated, and they were up in Connecticut to the, the finest of schools. When I retired, my wife took ill shortly after that, and she passed away. Oh, I'm sorry. And uh, I came out and... My mother wasn't very well, so I moved into the house, family house with her over north of Sandpoint uh, until she was removed to a, a unit where, where she lived for a while. But then, unfortunately, my mother and, and my brother both took ill. My mother because she was aged, my brother because he had cancer. He died on Monday, my mother died on Friday, oh. same week. So I was left pretty much alone. My children were then married and children on the way. And I simply asked him, what do you want your dad to do now that I'm retired and all, all my relatives are gone except you children? What do you want me to do? And they said, Dad, you do exactly what you want to do. So I had a, a Jeep and uh, sold the house up here, stored all of my goods, got in a Jeep and took off. And I went to Montana. I drove across to Montana where I had purchased a piece of property uh, some, some years ago as an investment. So I saw the property and I realized this is not going to be very good because it means that I'm going to have to live here in the summer find a warm place in the winter and maintaining two places is too much. I don't want to do that. So I took off again in the Jeep and I went to Arizona where people told me it was good warm living year round. So I get down there and I found a little little house in Wickenburg, Arizona, 60 miles north of Phoenix. And I kind of liked it. And it was warm and nice. So I said, why don't I settle here? So I bought the house. But and no, then, no fishing? Yeah, I'd go up to Colorado and fish in okay. San Juan and so forth. Then one day I realized that this is getting kind of boring. This is not the excitement I needed. So one day I locked the house up, packed a suitcase with my gear, went to the airport and got on an airplane. I flew to Los Angeles. I got in another airplane. I flew to Auckland, New Zealand. Just randomly? Yeah. No reservation, no nothing. <laughs> oh no my nothing. Goodness. 
with the checkbook in my pocket, money in my pocket. I just wanted to go on fishing trip somewhere. I'd been to Alaska, so I wanted to find another place. So it was between Chile and Auckland. But working for the airline, I had free passage to Auckland. I had a pass in my pocket. Wow. Having worked 34 years, you get passes. Right. Okay. So I had a file full of passes, all free. So I flew to Auckland, and no, no money spent the whole way. I got to Auckland, and I rented a car in a motel, and I toured the island to see what it was like. And I liked it. It was very nice. But it was getting too metropolitan. Auckland, the people there wanted to be like Los Angeles people. Yeah. So I didn't like it. I said, okay, let's go to South Island. Yes. So I went to South Island, rented a car there, and I toured the whole island. And I found a little town down at the southern tip of South Island called Gore, G-O-R-E. And it was labeled the brown trout capital of the world. And in the, in the garden entrance to the town, across the bridge, across the river, the Matera River, they had a trout that was, I'd say, 30, 40 feet high. Great, big, enormous brown trout leaping up. It was a beautiful thing. So I went into a motel there, and I got into the motel, and being the hound I am, I started walking the streets see what kind of shops and so forth they had in the little town. And only three, four doors down from the motel was a second-hand shop. And I walked in there, and I started talking to the owner, and we had a wonderful conversation. I told him what I was there for, what I, what I want to do, and so forth. And I left, went back to the motel, and had dinner. And I was sitting there, and I got a phone call. He said, this is your friend at the, at the store down here. Uh, I have some interesting, something you ought to consider. He said, I'm a member of the church, and in the church there's a family, and they've been good members of the church. And the lady said, we just moved our mother and father out of the farmhouse on the farm to the big city. Christchurch uh, where they'll get care and that's an available house would you be interested in renting it and I said sure let me take a look so I get in my car the lady invited me to come after dinner I went in there and it wasn't oh maybe an hour we conversed and so forth she asked me a lot of questions and she said would you like to rent the house well, it was a big house, three-car garage, three bedrooms, big kitchen, big living room, and a big yard, grass growing all around, and this great big farm full of sheep bordering the house and a roadway. And I said, yes, I, I'd like to rent it. And I said, how much will it be? Well, come to think of it, and you think back, in those days, it was one to ten on the dollar. I took ten thousand with me when I went down. Ten thousand times ten is what I had in the bank there. So I, I said, I'll take it, 
And she said, here's the key. She gave me the key that same night. She said, move in tomorrow, whatever you want to do. It was empty, and I had to get rental furniture and so forth. So the next day I moved in, and uh, I went back 10 years in a row. So you and always came back to North America? I came back every six months, and I, oh, I flew free. back there every six months, free. Oh, because of the airline. Yeah. Now, when you're fishing, were you using your natural flights? Yes. And do you, did you feel like they were more productive? Yes. So what about the argument when people say that if they're too real realistic, they don't work as well as... You make sure they're not looking realistic when they're in the water. They might look realistic when you set them on a white page. You'll see the legs and everything. Mm -hmm. It's not what you see when you put it down here or in that frame. In the water, it takes on an entirely different look, depending upon what you use in materials. And you use materials that imitate life, breathing. And if they breathe in the water and on the surface, that's what the fish are active on. Which bug was your specialty to tie? A uh, big stonefly. Oh. Because I found that up in the Catskills in one of the rivers called the Roundout. It was a small stream, and we went up to fish it for a weekend, the opening of season. And prior to the opening of season, there was one day where we could not fish. So I got a seine and two sticks. I went out in the middle of the stream. I had my partner go upstream and kick all the rocks. It loosened all the nymphs. They all floated down, and I lifted up the screen. It was full of nymphs and great big stoneflies. So I captured two dozen stoneflies, kept them in a bottle alive, okay? When I got home, we developed a method for dipping them in a coating that killed them and preserved them. So what I did, I glued a peg on the bottom of the nymph, put it in a container, and I had the nymph all stretched out, dead, but a perfect copy. I had those, and I have, I have one of those nymphs here. And that's what I tried to copy. And I did that, small and large, big ones like that. Uh, that's basically what I tried to tie. And I tied all of the Catskill type of tying. I did not tie many of the West Coast flies in. I was aware of what they were, but since I wasn't fishing here that much, all I did was tie a few to a fish when I came out. Coming up, Ted and I speak about fishing in New Zealand, fishing naturals, and good-looking people. Again, just a quick thanks to Blue Sky for Old Leaders. You can say goodbye to rebuilding short leaders, untying wind knots, or changing leaders during a hatch. The furled leader allows the angler to tie on tippet sections as the only leader adjustment necessary. They cast beautifully, have a built-in stretch factor, loop-to-loop -loop attachments, great prices, and a company who is small enough to genuinely care. Check them out at www.blueskyfly.com. Were you part of the Washington Fly Fishers yet? Yeah, that's quite a story, too. At one time, a shop owner out here knew me from the past. I tied at his booth at the big shows. He asked the club to make me a member. And 
I thought they did, and he thought they did. They sent me all of the paraphernalia of the club, and then some decided, no, he's not a West Coast fisherman. He's an East Coast fisherman. Oh. And they would not have me in the club. Did you Did you know all those guys? Did you know Roger Hank Many Brown? Of them. Did you Did you get to meet Hank Brown? Oh yes, many yeah. years before. Okay. Up in Canada. Right. He didn't know who I was. You know, I I just saw him and said hello. That's about it. But you got to meet everybody. Yeah, I knew all the old timers here, and I still know the old timers. There's some still around. It's been fun both east and west. Down in New Zealand, I caught, you can't imagine how many trout I caught. And I developed some methods down there that others that were locals down there did not try. And I was catching trout that big. Huge. Huge. What kind of techniques were you trying that locals didn't try? Well, that was unique. I fished (laughs) with one local guy from Gore, a young man. He was only 25. He was a local and he fished for trout all the time. The other was a guy from Alaska who, who took his summers down there like I did. And he was the third one. And there was a stretch of the Matera River that flowed through his brother's property. And it was, it was gated. It had fences all the way around. So it was private fishing, basically. But he allowed people to jump the fence and go fish and so forth. But I went down the side of the river, and the bank was 30 feet up down to the river, and then across, about 50 yards across. I was walking down the bank, and suddenly I looked out, and I saw this thing dimpling. And I kept watching, and another one came up and dimpled. And these were big trout, like this. They were coming up from the depths. I mean, that's a two-foot-long trout. Yeah, of the of the pool. And they were coming up, and they come to the surface, and they'd take two or three dry flies on the surface. And then they'd go right or left, and they'd go back down. So I studied these fish for a few minutes. I said, I can't cast to them. They're out there, you know, a long ways. How, how am I going to do this? They're big fish. I want to catch one. So what I thought, ah, I know how to do it. So I got my line, full line cast, kept it in the air, back and forth and back and forth. And as I saw the fish start up, still down, maybe 10 feet down, I could still see him coming up. And what I would do would, in a forward cast, when I thought he was at the surface, put my dry fly right where he would bite, where he would take naturals. I kept casting, kept casting, false cast, false cast, and one cast and put it right in front of him. He'd take it every time. And I'd hook him, and then I had this long line out. He'd run across, and I was down to the backing in the reel, and so forth. Finally, I would play him, going through the pool and down the back of the pool and I'd get to lower ground where I could get him under control and then get him down into another run into flat water where I'd I'd unhook him, Mm -hmm. let him go. I didn't keep any fish, yeah. Well, I have a question for you. Sure. So when you hear people who are fishing naturals, and like I mentioned, there's always the argument of 
of um, maybe they can be too natural, which has always been yep. very confusing to me. Something that I, I can say, as I've noticed that the more that a fish has, has eaten a fly, if you will, the more productive it seems to be. Have you found that after a fly's been taken a couple times, it almost seems to be more appealing? Okay, I'll tell you a story. Charlie DeFeo, very famous man. Yeah, yeah. He was an Atlantic salmon fisherman. He was my very close friend. Really? And one, oh yes. We, we had lunch every week. See those flies? Yeah. That's the first one he ever did. Really? Yeah. They're all Charlie's flies. Cool. That's my, he did two of those. <laughs> one for him, one for me. How The first amazing. one he ever did. The, uh, the other one just like this is up in Manchester, Vermont in the museum. So what did Charlie think of, of the Okay, Charlie went fishing up in Canada. Okay, he was with two other men. He was fishing for Atlantic salmon. They were out one day and nobody was catching any fish. And suddenly with this fly, Charlie caught a fish. Okay, so the other two kind of came in towards him. He caught that fish and he fished for a little while, caught another one. So the guys came up to him wanting to know, what fly are you using, Charlie? We want to catch a fish. So Charlie took the fly off and he handed it to one guy. That guy went out and caught a fish with that fly. Now, keeping in mind how many fish had been caught on this one fly, and that guy caught a fish. He came in, took a fly off, and gave it to the third guy. He went out and caught a fish. So all three caught a fish. And Charlie gave me the fly. The fly was totally torn apart. It had just a little yellow tail hanging out of thread and black fur. It just looked like a clump of gunk is what it looked like, but it worked in the water. And that's what caught the fish. So when you say, you know, that flies, you know, a lot of people say, well, if you tie the exact imitation, it's not going to be any good. Well, the best fly in the world is a good imitation and the fish is torn to pieces because he's got a dead meal. Ah. And so when you cast it out again, it's probably better than it was in the beginning. But in the beginning, you've got the fish to come up and grab at it. And many of the Atlantic salmon come up and just mouth the fly. They don't grab it. They don't bite it because they're not feeding. Right. And Charlie's theory is that flies at a, for Atlantic salmon are taken only in the mouth and crushed against the upper palate to get the juices. They do not feed on the bugs. They squash them to get the juices. What about with steelhead, when we know that steelhead, uh, say that a steelhead's not feeding in the river, and they're just taking out of aggression, would you still fish a natural in that situation, you personally, or would you fish more of an attractor pattern? I would fish more of an attractor pattern. What would be an attractor pattern that you would believe in? Well, really, a dry fly would be a, a, a wolf fly of whatever color you would want. Levo fly in dry fly. In wet fly, I think a supervisor of of sorts of color. A supervisor? Which ones? Oh my goodness. 
Minnow. Oh, a minnow pattern. Yeah. Okay. Minnow pattern. What do you think? And then I would go to hair wing. And hair wing, you can, you can say any one of the hair wings is the same. You just have a yellow butt, a green butt, whatever. Black bear hair and and dubbing. What do you think of the flies today that are being used? I will not endorse anything synthetic. Oh, why? Simply because of my orneriness. <laughs> and I am ornery when it comes to that. I don't believe that becomes craft, arts and craft, to tie an imitation with foam, plastic, whatever. That's not fly tying as the fraternity knows fly tying. This is fly tying. My nymphs are fly tying because you are creating something out of the most natural materials you can use. And if you use synthetics, you can do anything with synthetics. You can stamp it out of paper, you can stamp it out of plastic, you can stamp it out of whatever and put it on a hook and glue it to the hook. Yeah, no, that's a very interesting thought. Well, Jim Darren, the big mucky-muck of all eastern tires in the big shop in, in Manhattan, in New York City, said, Ted, I'll show you this box. It's full of these plastic things done. He said, I wouldn't fish a single one. He said, I have fish that have bumped the fly, never come back. They never come back and take the fly if they bump it once. And he said, I will not fish these. Guys catch fish, I guess. Yeah, they do. It's I ironic. A lot of, I think a lot of those guys think that <clears throat> naturals are arts, arts and crafts because they take so long to tie. Yeah. The Atlantic salmon patterns with the you know, 32 stacked wings, they could be arts and crafts. Yeah. It's, uh, it's so interesting to hear different viewpoints. That's right. From a generational, right. generational thing. Um, do you still desire... Going out and fishing, has it changed for you now that the environment's changed so much over the years? Well, the environment has changed so much. Not the rivers, but the environment has changed. We're not getting the amount and the quantity of fish in the rivers. So steelhead fishing has taken on an entirely different viewpoint in my mind. There are not enough fish in the river to give it a real good test anymore, but there are real good fishermen. I'll put it that way. So that a very few men are really good fishermen, know how to go and get good steelhead. But the majority of those young people coming into the field that we need, we need badly, they're not capable of going out and catching steelhead. They don't have the experience there are not enough fish for them to see many fish, and only the experienced guys are really catching the fish. And that's kind of wrong, because when those guys are gone, when I'm gone and others are gone, where are the young people? And there's not many of them around. You go to the meeting of Rocky and his, his men, they're all in their 40s, 50s, 60s. Right, you know what the argument is, is that because it's almost too easy to catch fish these days because of the gear that we have. Yeah, that's right. The technology. That's right. And a lot of the young guys are just so busy on the river that they don't go to the meetings. That's right. And there's a disconnect between the generations. That's right. I worry about the generations coming, whether they'll be good fishermen 
or whether they'll be meat fishermen. And that's what a lot of them are getting to be. So can I ask you something, sure. then? When you and, and the guys would go steelhead fishing, how many fish did you need to catch, in your mind, for that to be a good day? None. Great answer. No. Okay. So that hasn't My changed My experience then. is wonderful if I'm out there. Right. Nature is a wonderful place to be in. And quite honestly, if you want to talk about church and God, that's where you've got to be, not in a church seat. You want to be out there in nature and see what the river is. It's a beautiful thing. To protect that river is very important. And to fish it properly is also very important. We have laws trying to protect them. We have to make sure we obey those laws, whether we like them or not. Let's obey them. Let's do the right thing, and ultimately we'll all come to the same conclusion. Save the rivers. Where do you think this number thing started? People saying that it's all about the numbers. It's, it's always been a fascinating viewpoint for me because I, like you, don't need to catch a lot of fish to have a great day. I'm very romantic and I'm very sensitive and I really enjoy the wildlife and yeah. the, fol the foliage and, and yeah. the waterfalls and, and the experience as a whole. Yeah. But I like to listen to the different viewpoints where the older, the older guys say, you know, the young generation is all about numbers. And then the younger generation says, the older guy, we are, are you kidding? The older guys are the ones who won't stop talking about yesterday because of all the fish they used to catch. And I've, I've concluded that there are a number of guys in both generations. And yes. therefore, I can't draw any sort of conclusion. That's right. But what do you, what do uh, you think about that? I'll tell you one thing. This is why I'm so behind women fishing. They have a totally different attitude towards the fish they hook and catch. One thing I do not like, men or women, I don't ever want to see a picture of a man with a dead fish in his arms. I do not want to see that again. I will take every picture where he's fighting a fish, where he's got a fish on, where he's excited to get it up close, it's splashing, whatever action is there. I like that. I'll take any picture. But to see a guy that lands a fish and kills it and holds it up to show how big he is, I caught this big fish. I do not like it. And many of the old timers, you'll see nothing but photographs of an old timer carrying a fish or two right. that he's caught out in the river. And I tell myself, I don't like to see that. Have you always disliked seeing that? Yes. So were you ever the guy who splayed out ten fish at his feet on the grass? Once in a while I would keep one fish to eat. Mm -hmm. Basically, if I catch a fish and he bleeds for whatever reason, you must keep that fish. He'll die. Mm. It, it's always been my assumption that everybody from the 30s, 40s, 50s was basic was keeping fish and was not opposed to killing fish and taking photos of I can it. I tell you, I have a photograph of my grandfather and his two sons, and there's 60 fish on a boards at the site 
that they caught in one day. You know how many 60 big salmon are on, on a log? They nailed them to the log by the jaw. And these are fish that are that, that long. Huge. You know what they did? They had all these fish, but they took them all back to Kenmore and they gave them to friends to eat so that the people during the Depression had food. Okay. Let's but they kept them all that they would catch. But I was against that. I said, you catch what you need, but you get the other people to go out and find their own way. Don't take them food every week. That's just too many fish taken from other people. So I did not like that. But I encourage women to fish because I think they have an entirely different viewpoint of what fishing is and what it means. And as well, what it means to their husband. Mm. And I think a lot of women understand their man better by knowing what his hobbies are, what his likes and dislikes are, when it comes to things like like fishing, like raising children, so forth, I think that's important to a marriage. If you don't have that that togetherness, whether she fishes or not, if, if they both come together in the in what's behind fishing, and it's the beauty of fishing, it's the being out there. And I can remember what my wife did not. She fished. But she didn't, didn't especially care to fish. But she would go along, and she'd sit by the stream, and she'd have as much fun as I had out in the stream. Mm -hmm. And we'd laugh, and we'd do this and that. I can remember the first trout she caught was down in Pennsylvania, and I put her on a small creek, and we fished that creek, and the first thing I heard was screaming, okay? She had jerked a trout out of the water and was hanging up in a tree. Oh, dear. She, she threw the fish way up in the air. It was on the line. It was hanging up in a tree. And she was screaming, didn't know what to do. And I thought that was hilarious. What was her hobby? Her hobby. Well, her hobby was her kids. <laughs> really. If her hobby was tapestry. No. But if it was, if it were to be that. Would you have explored that with her in the way that... Oh, yes. Okay, so it's yeah. both ways. Yeah. What about the preservation of the personalities, the techniques, the equipment? Are we only trying to save those out of ego, or is there a reason to preserve that sort of past? I think the early fishermen had very big egos. They all wanted to outfish each other. Right. And that was not good for the fish because a guy out fishing had to capture and kill the fish to show off to the other guy, I beat you, I got five and you only got one. Uh, you know, that kind of thing happened a lot in my granddaddy's day. I'm just curious how, how what you guys think we should be telling young people. Well, you won't believe what I think. Nothing surprises me, Ted. Okay. You can't surprise me. <laughs> I will. When we go back into the history of famous fishermen, fly tires, and the like, who do the young people admire and want to know about and think of the history? 
the handsome ones. What the do you... ugly ones they did not. But you take many of the old-time steelhead fishermen, they look like they just came out of the garbage dump. You mean like physically looked like? Yes. Really? Yes. But we don't even know what they... Today, a handsome man will catch the eye of hands, other handsome men and handsome women. The ugly ones are kind of put off as a sidekick, secondary. Stop and think about it. And people don't agree with me. But I think if you took all the handsome people in the world and they were fishermen, as opposed to all of the others that are fishermen but in a different mode, ugly mode, you don't remember and you don't write about this guy over here. But that's so vain. I know. But what about... Aren't we that way? <laughs> yeah. Aren't we that way? But I'm just, Women are the same. Yes, but I'm just trying to think of... The problem is that I've read a lot of these... Well, Hank Brown wasn't especially handsome. No. And he, he is... But he was in a way. He handled himself oh. as a handsome man. So charismatic. Yes, very much so. But couldn't that and come... And there's a difference there. Couldn't that come down to someone who has class? Could it? Could. I mean, Lee Wolf was very handsome, but he was also... No, he wasn't. You don't think? No. I think he's kind of handsome. Did you ever see his hair wild? No. But that, that would probably make me find him more handsome, to be honest with you. Really? <laughs> I got a little mountain woman in me, yeah. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> but take all that away from it. As far as importance and relevance and what they can do to make the world and our fishery better. I don't think they had the focus but, to take the action to get things done in those days. They were men who wanted to go fishing as a, a, a fun trip, fun for them. It had nothing to do really with the rivers and the fish then. It was simply an outing. Okay, so moving forward then, why should I tell my children stories about the men before me? This is a real tough one. What would I want to tell my children about the history of fly fishing and those who came far ahead of me and some of those behind me? Let me make it easy for you. Let's choose an angler who probably wanted to be remembered, but not for vanity reasons or for ego. Let's talk about Hag Brown. So he was ahead of his time and was a conservationist, and he really appreciated what we have. Why should I pass his name down to the next generation and not just pass down his knowledge? Why, why, why pass him down? Because Haig uh, Brown showed the focus of an individual who was beyond the scope of other fishermen. And he saw the beauty of the surroundings and the way nature had provided man with the ultimate in belief. 
and he was a godly man. He was an honest man. He was the epitome of what most fishermen wanted to be on the West Coast. I think he was one of the keys to the whole history of the West. What about you, Ted? Mm. What's next for you? Do you want us to talk about you? No. Why not? I want to I, I want to remember that I focused on the things that were important other than the fish. It was important to see the streams of clear water, the trees, the animals. I wanted the enjoyment of being out in nature and fishing was only an afterthought. You, you bought what equipment there was, you went out, you needed a place to go. Where do you go? I go where it's beautiful. Where is beauty? Any stream is beautiful if you can find beauty in it. So go there. Fish there. If you catch a fish, okay. If you don't, okay. But the beauty of being out in that environment is what life's all about. And if you take that back to the daily world and you put that into your work, into your attention to family, attention to, attention to, to church, to all of those things, you'll be a better man for it and you'll eventually get that focus into your family and hope it goes on family after family after family. And it gets bigger and broader. And that's what I want. Uh, me as an individual, I'm just one little part of it. Let's make sure that my little part expands into others and others and others so that we get the people that truly, truly love this country. And the world is not a place today that I call in love with itself. We're all battling, we're all doing things we should not be doing. But if we all had the right focus, this earth is the only place that we know of that is beautiful. We don't know what the planets are, they're all gravel, dirt. Uh, this is the only place I know of that grows trees. <laughs> and isn't that beautiful? But uh, to me, life is, is about, about the preservation of, of a good life. Well, I can't ask for much more than that. I think I'm going to pass you on to my children, whether you like it or not. Okay. <laughs> and that concludes this episode of Anchored please take a moment to leave a review about Anchored on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening.